Hello folks, Edith here. Welcome along to this week's Soundtracking, my little pride and joy, my podcast where I get to enthuse about the world of film and music. Coming from a fan's point of view, that's always, always where I come from. Hope this finds you safe and well and coping with lockdown, the sequel as well as you possibly can. Um, I know there's lots of people who are having a tough time out there, so I hope for the next hour you can just maybe switch off for a bit and let our wonderful guests entertain you and take you deep into their world. There's some wonderful, wonderful things out there for you to watch and be entertained by. And today's show, we have two individuals talking about um, some wonderful work. And for the next couple of weeks, in fact, we are going to be double guesting up because there is so much great stuff that we want to talk about and enthuse about and draw your attention to. So I hope you don't mind that for the next couple of weeks, pretty much for the rest of November, we're going to be doubling up on guests. And it's just because there's so many great things and so many great people out there that we want to uh, shine a spotlight on. So thank you in advance for taking the time to listen. And it is two for the price of one uh, this week, starting off for the rest of November, basically, on Soundtracking, as we bring you a composer and a writer-director. First up is our old friend Ludwig Gornsson, here to talk specifically about season two of The Mandalorian. Sorry, I'm not going to do that every time I mention The Mandalorian, I promise. Uh, if you haven't already seen it, The Mandalorian is streaming now on Disney+, Plus, one episode at a time. Season two is out, so um, as I'm recording this, season the third episode of season two, I'm about to watch as soon as I pick the kids up from school. And if you haven't watched it yet, go back and watch season one. It's brilliant it's so good and I love the way that Disney Plus are doing this where they're making us wait a week for each episode it's like the old days then we bring you Basam Tarek on Mogul Mowgli which should have had a cinematic release but is instead available to watch on home entertainment formats I'll tell you specifically where you can see it at the end of the episode it stars former guest on the show Riz Ahmed and it's such an original piece of filmmaking that I really wanted to give it a little bit of love hence the bonus guest this week but we'll begin with Ludwig and when you begin with Ludwig there's really only one place to begin. Thank you. 
Ludwig, it's so great to have you back on. We spoke, I think September time was it, I think, when we had a bit of a deep dive into Tenet. We had a brief chat about Mandalorian, and at the time you said you were tweaking and finishing season two. We've had two episodes so far, and there's something really nice about being drip-fed TV again. It's so long, and normally it's kind of all dumped, and you can binge watch, you know, ten, six, eight, however many episodes. There's something really nice about the kind of being made to wait. Especially, I think, maybe in the pandemic times, because, (laughs) you know, I, I feel like we need anything now to be able to help the sense of time moving. Yeah and something to look forward to next week and it's like i think that's that's really nice and and we we definitely need that right now yeah totally the show is you know i love the show we loved it from the start um and the anticipation for this new season is just brilliant there's nothing like it and the conversations that we have over the breakfast table about it and school pickups trying to pick out all the easter eggs all that kind of stuff there's like this kind of constant competition between us all of kind of who spotted what who can tell what but do you mind if we go kind of way back and and sort of just get get back to the first conversation that you had with John did he just did he call you up how was that kind of first introduction to you being brought in to be part of the the Mandalorian team yeah I mean it started with John just calling me and asked to have a meeting and I think I knew that it was about Star Wars, but I mean, everything at the time was, you know, and it still is like, you know, very secretive. And and, and so we didn't know what the Mandalorian was back then. So I was, I drove to his office. Uh, it was in, in Playa del Vista in LA. And uh, I walk in there, it's the first time I meet John and John is in the middle of this, of, of this big room. And I look on all the walls and they're just covered in uh, art oh, wow. uh, from Mandalorian. And it's like, you know, I, this, I recognized the Star Wars soul and the Star Wars feeling when I saw it. But I saw this new character and, I, you know, I was like, I had a thousand questions. And John <laughs> uh, answered every one of them. And, and just we walked by all these pictures and he told me about the story. He told me about the baby. He told me about everything. And, and uh then uh, we had a little conversation about, or a long conversation about the music, and he told me what he was inspired by when he wrote it. He also told me that he wanted to try something new, you know. But it was still important that we had the soul from from Star Wars in the music, and um, but uh, that was kind of our initial conversation. Did he have any specific kind of reference points of kind of, you know, because I know music's a big thing from for him having been lucky enough to chat to him a couple of times going way back to to swingers and all that kind of stuff right through to you know reworking all that iconic music for jungle book and you know so music's and and all that fantastic music and chef as well so i know that kind of music's such a big thing for him and so when he was visualizing it and writing it did he have any sort of playlists or specific music that he was listening to that he talked to you about that were you know reference points at all yeah the first reference he gave me was the kurosawa movies seven samurais and so that was i mean i went back and listened to that score the first thing i did
and also obviously uh the western is a big influence in the show the western theme and yeah and um you know i love all those all the Marconi scores are iconic So those were kind of the two reference points for him, like samurai films and westerns. I love the idea that he. I was reading something that you said about of kind of sort of switching it up in the same way that um, with the Kurosawa films, the idea of it it not being sort of traditional or expected for the genre of the film. You know, there's a kind of real sort of mix with things there, and and with Morricone, he did that brilliantly with um, the Tarantino film, The Hateful Eight, in terms of you know, it's a Western, but the score is almost like a horror score in terms of it mixes with the genre, in terms of it's not necessarily what you'd expect sort of thing. It's a really clever way of not messing with the with the audience's head, but kind of having fun with it in a way. And like you say, trying something new. Yeah, and I, and I, I think especially with Morricone, what he was, what made it so interesting as um, with music is was as a producer, how he took sounds that we're not used to hearing combining them and also manipulating them with effects and uh, like reverbs and at that time that was very i mean it's, it still is it still holds up it still feels very new and modern yeah. and i think I, that was was something that i've always been so inspired by how you can take just one little sound and immediately hear two notes and you just your ear sticking and you you know exactly what to yeah. feel you can relate to it immediately yeah I, I found my old notes that I'd written down when I watched the first season and I kind of dug them out and was looking back. And one of the things that I'd written down was was Rocky, the theme tune for Rocky and um, Bill Conti's uh, Rocky theme tune. And that and that idea as well of him being this kind of, you know, one man journey kind of thing. And I guess that kind of journey that he goes on as well. There were kind of elements of, of that that it really reminded me of as well from the first first season. I hope you take that as a compliment. Um, that kind of thing where you, where things remind you of things in a way as well. Yeah, I mean it's funny because so you know one thing that I did when I was started to do research for this project was to you know obviously I listened to a lot of John the Star Wars music, but I also went back and listened to the music he wrote for Star Wars and kind of tried to put myself into the mindset that he was in at the time when he was creating this music and also you know listening to a lot of Marconi score from that time too. We know, I mean, there's only like, you know, 10 or 20 scores that we know as an audience, but but both of Williamson and Marconi obviously created hundreds and hundreds of scores and, and there's so much interesting to listen to. And 
I was definitely inspired by by a lot of the early works from Marconi when I was writing the score. something incredibly iconic with this score for the Mandalorian the demand from you is huge though when you think about it because these episodes every episode is like a feature film you know it's it's so cinematic and it's got different directors involved it's got different feels to it different focus to it so for you as a composer it feels like it was a what sounds like a lot of work in terms of what's asked of you what was it was it like a huge amount of work to create or are you are you just really good and making it sound really <laughs> no i mean it is it is a it is a it is a lot of work uh it just also it's a lot of work that i, I mean love to do it feels yeah. like you know that's um, i guess a blessing for me and you know i get to work and play with music um but the first thing is to come up with I mean, then the new sound and the new ideas and experiment and come up, you know, because you're 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 already starting up here. You know, there there's the expectations you know, huge expectations is huge. The music means so much to so many people. And if you think about it too much, you, you're kind of setting up yourself to fail a little bit. So it's, I was extremely lucky to have all the support from John and from Dave Filoni, John Favreau, Dave Filoni. In the way they supported my ideas, I'm, I'm very really open and keen to hearing new things, and they had their ears fully open. And then I was also lucky to be able to start writing music just before they started shooting. So I started writing music based on the script. So I, I wrote a couple of songs and um, a bunch of songs, and I was able to experiment and try out these new ideas and these new sounds. And and then I and the way I tackled it when I started seeing picture was more. I was kind of thinking it more as like I was scoring it a, a film and putting the time and putting, you know, we recorded every episode with an orchestra and wow. yeah, we, I mean, it was, I wrote about, I think four or five hours of music for the eight episodes and uh, every episode had, like you said, like its own little thing to it. So but then it all has to come back to that theme, doesn't it though? It all has to kind of navigate back to that in a clever sonic way back to back to him really doesn't it that's the whole thing yeah <laughs> yeah and, and but that's the easy part because once once, <laughs> once you have that in your pocket you can always go back to it and, yeah. and but also what's what was fun or different in season one that is that all of this was so new you know you never seen the character you never heard that music before you can relate to it in a way where you can now it's like it's interesting i was like watching 
one of the teaser trailers for season two and like i heard like the theme in there it's like and i was thought i was like oh this is this is going to be completely different from with audience now they can relate to the music in a completely different way so i never worked on like a sequel or like a what do you say a follow-up before so it was really interesting to think about that when i was kind of scoring the show well i i only discovered not that long ago that with every opening star wars theme you know when the when the crawl starts that it was that it was re-recorded for every film and tweaked ever so slightly to the themes of that film and stuff and I had no idea and it was it kind of blew my mind and I was I've sort of gone back to kind of to watch and try and pick out the sort of really subtle differences and stuff like that I love but I love stuff like that it's like that's so great but that just shows how important it was to George and to John for you know to for each each one to feel fresh and to feel new what would for you has been the big difference from working on season one to working on season two in terms of did it feel different was there was there different asks did it feel easier I guess you already had the foundations of that theme there so you know you didn't have to come up with that but was it easier or does it make it trickier uh it definitely made it easier I think but then it's also tricky because it's like you know it's always hard to do like a follow-up for something that was very successful I, it was also very interesting to me because I, you can also work with material that now people are have lived with and yeah. it's shaping people. So even even before you know, even before you're going to turn on the episode, you already have the tune or the theme in your mind. You already you wait. You're just waiting for the time where you're going to hear drums, it. Those <laughs> drums are started. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. And then it's, it's but even once the episodes, you know, we sit and we watch all that beautiful artwork that comes up in the closing credits as the, you know, the kind of the credits roll. And, and then it, it kind of, you get really sad when the episode's finished, but like for about an hour afterwards, at least you're still singing that theme tune. No, for me, it's like, I always, um, for me, right. Like working with sounds and, and using instruments and manipulating them and, and, and actually writing themes and writing melodies. It's like, 
goes in hand in hand to me. Um, I could have, you know, if I'm going to start writing Mandalorian, writing the Star Wars, new Star Wars music, I would go and just go to the piano and sit down like, okay, I'm like, now I'm going to try to write the new theme for Mandalorian. Like, yeah. nothing good would have come out of that. Not for me, I'm made for, for someone else, but like, every music's already been written in a way, you know, like every note I'm playing is already, I've already heard it somewhere. So for me, um, the way you can use sound and like maybe it is micro like micing the piano in a different way or using pitching it down or hearing it in a different way gives me um more ideas to how to come up with new um things and, and also the way the way i started writing the Mandalorian was with the recorders and i hadn't played that instrument before and had you not uh not the bass recorder that's like i played the normal recorder but not the bass recorder so like having that in my hands and 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 playing things that I'm not that's not in my muscle memory or it's just all about coming up with new ways of being creative and for me like hearing new sounds and and working with sound design is is a way where where I get more inspiration from. What made you think about buying that kind of kit of recorders? What was the stimulus for going? I'm gonna get some recorders. Uh, for me, it was trying to uh, reconnect with my the inner my inner child uh i was i was i was thinking about star wars and star wars music and thinking about how it felt when i heard that music for the first time and i remember when i was like eight and nine and i heard the music for the first time and it felt like i was on a different planet in a different universe I, and and i wanted to reconnect with that feeling because now almost now every time i write music i sit in front of the computer mm-hmm you know, you sit and work in front of the computer, type in on the keyboard, you play on the keyboard and you look at a screen, you know, you put so much of your time and energy into it, but you don't get anything back. You know, it's not talking to you. So I wanted to just surround myself with instruments that I could physically play. That was vibrating, that, that were talking back to me, that told me to, gave me different ideas. And because that's the way I used to write music when I was a, when I was a kid. So maybe it's in my unconscious, maybe it's somewhere in the back of my mind. I was like, well, what about recorders? That was like the first instrument you played. So <laughs> I, I ordered a set of uh, recorders and I'd never seen that bass recorder before. So I, that's what I was just drawn to from the, from the beginning. And it was just really incredible therapeutic for me to just sit in a room and play that instrument for two days and just kind of meditate and just play that. I was probably driving my engineer nuts. <laughs> I was like literally because I, I couldn't really technically i can't really play a lot of notes I, but i rhythmically i'm like yeah i can play rhythms pretty pretty well so it was like all like rhythmically it's a recorder of music that came out for two days
they aren't they aren't well in my kids school they aren't teaching the recorder anymore it's the ocarina oh cool which is the right is a kind of round version of a of a recorder that you put your fingers on there and kind of yeah he's got so he it's quite good because he, it's he it's got a little string that he just wears around his neck so it's just always there like a medallion uh-huh. yeah so it's there so it's kind of like, what's this weird thing you've been it's like oh it's an ocarina so yeah season but, three yeah. but i love that i that whole you know i've i've heard you talk about that you know kind of the, the recorders and then layering this journey up of this tune with the drums and then the piano and then the electric guitar and then this beautiful spanish guitar and it's just it's amazing because every time you hear it it almost has you hear something else in it you know it's kind of almost another thing unveils itself it sounds like there's almost never the same version of the theme twice, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> I'd try to change it up, I guess. And did that, I guess, inform the rest of the kind of score, so to speak, or the sound of the the show? Uh, yeah, it did. I I did. Uh, so I wrote that one track, and I started with you know, like I said, with the recorder, and then one instrument led me to another instrument. It was kind of solving a puzzle. Yeah. And then I did five songs like that, and I used those five songs and different verses from those songs became themes and. I sent all the songs to John and Dave and they've been listening to them for four months before they started editing the show. So that was a way for maybe for me to get them to, to start liking the music before I put it into the picture. But um, yeah. There's a great bit of um, in the in your galleries episode where you're in the, the studio with the orchestra recording the score and Dave's in the, the kind of control room with you. And it's the I think it's the fanfare, you know, the. Mm-hmm. And he looks like a five-year-old, just the, <laughs> like his mind's blown just by this kind of excite. It's such a beautiful thing to watch. Just oh, he's kind of like, oh my god, this is it. This is brilliant. <laughs> it's so wonderful to see. It's just, uh, yeah, it's very clever. It was crazy because he was sitting. You know, we were recording with the orchestra, and he was sitting there every session, just drawing. 
five minutes and made this incredibly like drawing like the artwork that you see in the end of the show those kind of things they just came up with like and i had them actually in my on my walls in my house oh man what can you tell us about the rest of this season because after i don't want to do any spoilers for anyone because obviously you know people watch it when they get to watch it but we shouted at the screen at the end of episode one at the unveiling of certain character we were like oh my god and then we we spotted Anakin, a part of Anakin's pod racer as well, in in that episode, and obviously the bar from Tatooine as well is in there. The first couple of episodes. Um, one of the droids looks like Wally as well, just the head of Wally. But um, what can you tell us about the the rest of the season two? Well, that's the thing. Like, there's so many details in everything and in, yeah. in every aspect of the show, from like visual to the art, you know, to the graffiti on the walls you know uh to the costumes to the puppets to the music and and i think that's what is so uh just makes it so enjoyable to 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 see like people just really everyone's working on the show is just really devoting everything they have and all and yeah it's it's uh so what are we what are we getting from for the next episodes we're gonna get more of that <laughs> <laughs> It's like you're going to say, it's like you have, there's someone, I know what it's like because um, I remember interviewing Adam Driver and um, I wasn't interviewing him for Star Wars. It was for Logan Lucky, actually. And they were like, don't ask him about Star Wars. You can't ask him about Star Wars. And I was like, oh, I really want to ask you about Star Wars. He's like, there's literally someone behind that glass who's like a sniper that if I say anything, will kind of come in and that's it. It's over sort of thing. But I think that that's one of the brilliant things is the way that we don't know anything. And it's just this wonderful unveiling week on week of of treats, visually, sonically, memories, new things. It's brilliant. So unique. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, hats off to, to John and, and John Favreau and Dave, because, you know, a lot of the things we're seeing, we also get in season two, is like, you know, ideas that we already got from season one. So in the writing there, you know, it's all very thought of already but like uh, musically i can use the same you know there's there might be some some little things i started with in season one that now in season two you get the full theme from or you you get you know you get um the second half yeah i'm desperate for when we're allowed to have live music again you know in big kind of royal albert halls and places like that to have this music played live in a big venue because it just warrants that kind of 70 piece orchestra being there with a huge crowd to get those those physical reverberations in that room yeah yeah i can't wait for that to happen. yeah fingers crossed but for now you'll have it in your in your in your uh, living room yeah really, really <laughs> loudly listen it's so great to chat to you and i genuinely you know i think you've created something really really special for this for this thing I don't know how much we're getting of it. If we're, I mean, I don't know if they've, if there's any more series to come after this. I hope so. But um, but yeah, I think that it's absolutely perfect, and it's it's really special, and it's great to chat to you about it. No, I really appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you, and I can't wait to uh, hear your uh, your kids playing the the theme in Ocarina next time. You only need two holes, so you can do 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 do. Since we last spoke, the seven year old is now doing clarinet and french horn <laughs> wow you can almost play the whole thing for him by himself he's, 
obsessed. It's like the uh, his dad used to play the trumpets when he was little at school, and so um, they've started him on the. Is it called the the cornet or the cornet to start mm-hmm. with yeah. before he moves up? And so, um, who that's a that's a pretty interesting sound to have first thing in the morning and and last thing at night. But you know, I'm a proud <laughs> mum, and I'm giving him all the encouragement he needs. <laughs> Um, but you have definitely inspired them in a massive way um, with the music in this show. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. Take care. It's lovely to chat to you. Stay safe. And I hope to get to, uh, to chat to you again at some point, Ludwig. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. Thank you so much. From Ludwig Göransson's score to The Mandalorian, that's Nurse Droid. Rounding off the first part of soundtracking with the ever-brilliant composer. The Mandalorian is available on Disney Plus and is literally one of the best things I have watched on TV in ages. We love it and so excited every week for every new episode to be released. Now next we bring you Bassam Tariq, whose new film is called Mogul Mowgli. Quite unlike anything I've watched for a while, it tells the story of Zed, played by Riz Ahmed, a British Pakistani rapper who's struck down by a debilitating disease on the eve of a world tour. As you'd imagine, the movie features plenty of great musical performances, including this, the Zed Bedroom Jungle Rap. Jerry boy better watch your back Zed is back with a wicked chat Don't watch out the lyrics attack Whenever I saw that's where it's at When I entire side arena Just impress all designer Arm the money, guess for Sachi, Dolce and Gabbana Mostly no Valentino, Polo, Gucci, Boss and Prada Yes these guns good and proper Yes these guns good and proper Whenever I stop the designer guns Gally watch out for the boy's charms Step to Zed by man in his arms Step to Zed by man in his Hey Sam, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for doing this. I'm sorry that you're having to do it in your car. No, no, it's all good, it's all good. <laughs> I might I might have to lower the window in a minute, but otherwise... There's some air in. How are you today? I'm great, thank you so much for asking. I'm doing good, yeah, really good, thanks. Uh, you know, the new normal world that we live in of all this kind of, you know, crazy digital world that we have to communicate in, but it's lovely that I get the chance to to see you and speak to you about your extraordinary film. Massive congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. So you're a fan. Oh, I mean, it's just, uh, I was lucky enough, I spoke to to Riz quite near the start of lockdown, actually, about his last album. And he was kind of like, wait till you see this film. And and man, he wasn't wrong. It's so powerful. It's just brilliant. Do you mind talking about the seed of the idea and, and, and how long ago the the idea was formed really and how that was formed 
Yeah, yeah. So um, thank you so much, by the way. And uh, we're all we're all fans of, of what you've been working on. And um, particularly our producer Bennett was so excited that this is happening. So oh, <laughs> this conversation. So, so yeah, yeah. You know, so so Riz and I have been friends for a few years. He had seen my first documentary, These Birds Walk, and we wanted to figure out a way to work together. We just yeah. didn't know what it would look like. And uh, I was a fan of his music, but I always knew that he could push it in other ways. And, I, and that's what I was actually curious to do was like, how can we actually build a narrative through music mm-hmm. and say something that, you know, is also about our own insecurities and, and that irrelevance that I feel that's always around the corner. And um, I think that's what I kind of wanted to talk about. But I also realized that coming home was a way to really kind of bring it in, really, you know, bring it home, as they say. So, um, and then I think with the illness, it, it was something close to both him and I in our own lives. And we felt like that's that's a really strong way to kind of talk about this like cosmic fate, that yeah. the things that we cannot control sometimes that actually end up deciding what success will look like for us. And in terms of writing the script and then within that, having these these kind of wonderful, uh, almost kind of, you know, like sort of short films really within his performances, within those kind of songs that the, the lyrical content obviously has so much relevance to his, you know, his internal thought process, his external thought process is so clever in, in terms of the way that the music kind of places his character almost within the film sort of thing was that was that something that you that that was kind of created as you were going along once you'd kind of worked out the narrative of the film in terms of okay we need x number of performances or we need so many songs no it was very organic like we were just kind of that's a great question and and honestly like um we were just kind of riffing with it as we were building it and I think and I think that that has a lot to do with me coming from documentary where I don't I, I, and I think that kind of, I mean, I think that naive, like like that sort of naive approach of like, I ah, will figure it out as we're filming it <laughs> is how I've always done documentary. But when yeah. you have days and like you have a crew and they're going to like check out after 12 hours, you know that, okay, crap, this is, you know, we're actually on the time crunch now. So yeah. it's, but, but I think that allowed me to just kind of really listen to the environment, listen to like, you know, as the kids started reciting the Quran, I was like, oh, okay, this is something that we can use. This movement now, this this movement needs to be a part of the film. So as things were kind of unfolding <laughs> while we were filming, we were kind of adapting and building mm-hmm. that into the larger narrative or into the larger, like, you know, musical thing that, 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 was, that was coming together. And we also filmed the movie chronologically. So we shot everything as much as we could. And, you know, so the way we started the film, we knew it was going to start in a concert and it was going to end with a concert in a bathroom. And that was something that we knew was going to happen. And the song was going to be this, this song that he's kind of creating, a, you know, along the way of, of Toba texting. So that was something that I think we, we started building in a little bit more as we were filming. Even the way that that, um, that performance at the start is shot, you know, where he's, he's on side view, you know, he's not facing the audience. He's kind of, even yeah, that kind perfect. of tells you so much about kind of the character and, and, and where he is and and what he's kind of you know that that there is a kind of struggle there that there's kind of the, there's an identity in terms of he doesn't quite have the confidence to face that audience at this point yeah. I think it's so even that's just such a really powerful thing and but it also does this great thing of it it brings you right there with him on stage and from that point on you're there with him I, what I felt anyway watching the film you're there almost side by side with him uh, throughout this whole film. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, this is really, I'm so happy that you picked up on that. There's this excellent editor um, who recently passed away by the name of Jonathan Oppenheim. And what he had always said was that your first few minutes of the film should give you the rules and the language mm-hmm. of, of what this film is going to be. And, and then whatever it is that you're saying in those first few minutes are basically telling the audience the rules and how you know how they're going to engage with the film and also set their expectations yeah. so i think that was something that that i really you know kept close to me and as as and i feel like the best films do that they 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 give you the rules and the language of what the film's going to be within those first few minutes so i wanted us to kind of get that kind of ethereal feeling as well as this kind of uh the, the claustrophobic and visceral quality and i think what we're what are what our main, you know, character is going to contend with. I think we wanted to try to get that all out yeah. in the beginning. It was it's really interesting. I, I spoke to a wonderful lady called uh, Rada Blank today about her her film. Oh. She's a, she's oh she's a powerhouse. It was amazing, and we were talking about how her film, in terms of there's there's layers to it, and I, I really felt similar with this in terms of there's a you know there's there's the straight in entertainment value of this film in that it's it's so great to watch and you're so entertained by the story and the way that it's shot and the sounds of it as well but there are there are other layers to it in terms of questions that you won't raise and issues that you feature within the narrative as well and it's almost it's so it makes those moments even more powerful when you are talking about you know his his questioning his his own kind of heritage and how comfortable he feels with that and and his kind of confusion with all that as well and how do you write that into a script is that do you kind of think about it in terms of there are layers to this or is it I'm just fascinated about how how you write something like because it is so effective Mm, oh thank you I think so much of what we did was Riz and I sitting together and me kind of you know, it was just us kind of spitballing things that were very close to us and yeah. us not worrying, I think, as much of about uh, this thing of audience, right? And I think, and, and not to say that, like, we don't care about the audience. I feel like in the edit, I'll start thinking about those those bigger questions of how people are engaged. Yeah. But I think at the moment of writing and in the moment of developing and and then, you know, bringing it onto screen and making it real, while we're filming it, it's just all about like, does it feel honest? Does it feel vulnerable? Does it feel, you know, something that I can connect to? And and I feel like if, if it has a truth to it, then it then it works. And I feel like also having Riz from the start was was kind of an important part of this, where him and I, we were like, you know, every step of the way, we were lockstep. We we were taking, you know, every step together within the writing and and how we're building this. And and that was really important because he had to be full on at every moment of the film where w- with every decision that I was making and how we're going to like move Zed forward. And he had to be game with it because he had to throw himself into it and, and really, I think, um, push things. And I think it's also everyone that was in the film brings informed something in the film, whether it was uh, Ali Khan, the, the person who played the father, he was, you know, everyone brought their two cents and, and, corrected things right or or or, yeah. or brought a truth to it where i had to rewrite something and yeah. the same thing with rpg uh nabhan rizwan so who great. plays yeah so he actually you know i had written the character to be a very like kind of self-righteous muslim kid who was like kind of like an instagram guy that was very earnest like overly earnest mm. but then he was like well what if we take it this other way because this feels like and i was like oh man and then he like introduced me all these zanny rappers and 
the SoundCloud scene. And I was like, wait, actually, that, that, that's a stronger way in. So then we decided to go less earnest or earnest in a different way, right? Yeah. And something that's actually just, because that's also what's getting more of the hits. So that's, you know, and um, yeah, so, so yeah. we took it there. Yeah, and, and I think, and he wrote the lyrics to Pussy Fried Chicken. It was no. him. And yeah, yeah, he wrote, Nevan wrote the lyrics to Pussy Fried Chicken. That. And he just made it all like, like, and then he went into a studio with our music supervisor, Abdullah, Al-Wali, and they just recorded it together and and, and I just got this like sound file and, I, and this was like during prep and I was so blown away by it. I was like okay great this is really helping me inform how we're going to like build up a character and you know even with like what he would look like you know we both sat together um me and Nabhan I looked at his face like we had we printed out a headshot and we're like all right so what does this guy look like you know what is does he have tattoos like where does he have them and and all that and then like we brought it to our makeup artist Bean and then Bean like worked on it herself so it was it was this kind of interesting collaboration along the way I feel like I almost feel like a fraud taking any credit for anything because it's like you know just like in documentary where you kind of like you just kind of like have a camera and you kind of disappear and I think there's an element of this where I had to allow myself to just kind of you know it's like empower everyone to bring their best and just kind of like sit back a bit. That whole side of it as well because the tone to the film is is kind of brilliant in that the the all the kind of right sort of almost light reliefs are so kind of perfectly timed just to give you a breath and just to you know what I mean allow mm. that kind of yeah shoulders to drop as well you know I, I just wanted to reflect back something you said about tone and and when I was 13 I discovered Radiohead and I remember <laughs> the albums I bought were um this was like in 2001 and you know 9-11 had just happened and I'm trying to like process like what who the hell am I where do I fit into this and I, I pick up Kid A and uh okay computer and I remember what was so great about okay computer was it kind of did this thing where like it would take you through this like crazy place at, like you know be like climbing climbing up the walls and then after that you have no surprises It was just always this kind of exciting thing that it, it would take you in something really dark, but then it would just kind of soften the blow a bit. And I felt like Radiohead's always done a really great job of like how they like put their music together and, and their track lists. And, and I've always kind of looked at that and like, and you know, a few other bands that 
at that time that I discovered like Sigur Rós and, yeah. um, you know, and actually, and actually even the person that we brought on that, that, that did the music, Paul Corley, is someone that works like he's like almost considered the fifth member of Sigur Rós. He's he does all their arrangements and all that stuff. Yeah, Paul Corley is this hidden gem of a guy that's actually lived in Iceland for a long time. And so, so we brought him on board to do a lot of the music for the film because I think he brought on this very visceral quality. He himself mm. is a huge film nerd. But, but I think this idea of like, how do you balance this, this element of tone and, and, and like levity, right? I think that yeah. was something that I wanted to make sure existed because in, in all this darkness, the humor is also really important to find and, and how we get there. I think, and that's also like, I think in editing, I think Adam Biskuski, our editor, did a wonderful job of finding that, those moments and, and really hitting those those beats. Did you bring Paul in then purely because you're a big Sigaros fan? <laughs> no, no, no. I, honestly, like uh, I was, I remember, like I think Sigaros was was like I was a fan when I was a lot younger, and I have a very soft spot for them. But I remember like seeing them a few years ago live, and it's like after a while you wonder if they like you know sometimes you watch like your favorite bands and you get older, and it's like have they just become cover bands of themselves? <laughs> it sometimes feels, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't yeah. mean that as like, I don't mean that as like a dig on them, but it's it's just like, I think so much of their music's become so tropey. But but I remember like what, what they had done in their earlier days was, was so exciting. And it allowed me to then explore p- people like Colin Stetson and yeah. who like, you know, and, and just and just like other, you know, I, I'm just losing names of my head, but 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 even like where, where Bonnie Vare goes and his newer stuff is just, so exciting and and just and the dissonance or, or or like another artist that I love is how to dress well who is this guy yeah. named I think is yeah and like his music is just like a lot of reverb and it's like this like kind of like lo-fi basement bedroom hip-hop type vibe and I'm like oh this is kind of exciting Riz and I would always send like Jay Electronica like earlier like mixtapes because what he had done with the Eternal Sunshine uh, track was so exciting and just so cool and it's like why do you need a beat and and this is the kind of space that we wanted to kind of push more and more into which I was like well we could go with more of the beat makers like and I'd worked with Forest Swords on my last short and I love Forest Swords I'm not sure if you're familiar with Forest Swords and I mean maybe all these names are just like yeah you know everybody's it's really cool it's really cool to have a conversation like this. So Forrest Ward is somebody how I loved and, and he did Ghost of Sugarland. And, and I wanted to go somewhere with, with the soundtrack of, of Mogul Mowgli where it was a bit more ethereal, but also grounded yeah. in some of this kind of like acoustic sounding kind of stuff that, that, that just felt like, you know, and, and I think working with Paul Davies, who is our, um, 
our sound designer, it was important that like you never knew where the songs began and where the sound design started. Yeah. That was something that I think was quite important to me because I realized that like melody was something that I didn't I didn't care too much about melody for this film. And, and in, there was a version of this film where I did and we did create a bunch of melodies. But I realized that so much of what drives this film are the performances that anytime I had done something like that, I felt like it would take away or it undercut the performances. And I wanted to make sure that we were leaning into the performance as much as we could. So that's why it became more of like an oral like design and, yeah. you know, and, and more textural than it was, I would say, you know, overly musical. That really works because it's not like the emotion stops when like a performance stops. There's a kind of there's a there's a brilliant thread that kind of then then almost kind of like carries you on to to the next thing. Um, I tell you, someone you should check out is this Icelandic guy called Askir. A-S-G-E-I-R and he's this young musician but his dad writes all his lyrics so his dad's this kind of like 75 year old Icelandic poet and his dad writes all these lyrics and he then creates all these beautiful kind of melodies and sings his dad's poetry absolutely what? Asker, okay I'm going to check him out Wow. I mean mean, you'll cry, I've cried a lot to it but it's like (laughs) good tears good tears but but it's so great I've been such a fan of, of Riz's for so long and I love watching his journey in terms of, you know, where he's kind of putting himself and, and how honest he is with with everything that he does. Mm. And I think that I wanted to ask about, you know, those performances, because we know that he can do that as Riz Ahmed. We know that he's got, you know, he's he's so many things and being up mm. on stage and, and, and rapping is something that he could do. You know, it's 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 part of what he does. So when he's playing the role of someone who is doing that, <laughs> what what is is it for you? You know, being his being his friend and being close to them. You know, it's it's. I don't even know what the question is, but is it kind of you know how much of it is Riz and how much of it is Zed? Yeah, that that's a great question. And uh, you know, the funny thing is, I had seen him live a few times, and I filmed him from backstage a few of his Riz uh, concerts, and I felt like we needed to take the energy to like 12 or 13 with, with Zed. And I think he felt the same way. So we brought on Polly Bennett, who is this incredible uh, choreographer and movement director. She choreographed and she did the movement direction 
uh, for Remy Malik in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody when he was playing Freddie Mercury. Oh, wow. and, and she's just an exciting person who, and, and I think the, the language of movement is very important for me because I realize that I'm a very self-conscious person when it comes to the body. And I don't know how to necessarily, I don't know how to, like, I don't know how to perform that way. Like I, I can get quite intellectual and I need someone to help break that. So, yes. so she basically choreographed a lot of the movements for Riz to help him and, and give him basically some of these tools that he can use. And I think we knew out of the gate, we wanted Zed to just have this kind of crazy energy that, that just kind of came out of nowhere, which when you go to uh, one of his, like, you know, back then he went by Riz MC, but now, you know, he just goes by Riz as, a, as an artist, performing artist. But, but those, those early Riz MC concerts, I think he's, he can be quiet. Like, and I think that's a really exciting thing about Riz is he's very intellectual. And I think that headiness can be quite cool, but but I think for film and, and because you're not there live with him, it just needs to have a bit more of a flair. So it, it is so much of, of Riz, but it's like, let's go just get a little bit bigger. Let's get that Prince Nassim kind of swagger <laughs> yeah. in this as well. So yeah. I think that was something that we wanted to And the anger as well. Of, there's just yeah. and the anger that's in there as well, totally. Yeah. But there's there's the the songs that are that are you know some of the songs that are in there are have a life you know can have a life of their own whether it's you know where you from or can I live and Tobatek sing and they're, they're they're kind of really big brilliant songs you know pieces of pieces of music that, that I hope have a life outside of the film as well do you know what I mean because they're yeah. bloody great yeah yeah and I think what's what's interesting is so Riz and I we went to Pakistan. And we actually, I did that, like, they did this, like, video from a gambo, which wasn't supposed to be a video. It was just, like, it was me filming the wrestlers just, like, because there was this research footage. And then while we were there, I was like, yo, can you just rap? I'm not sure if you've seen this video, but um, it's, no. like, I'll, I'll have them send it over to you. I'll have, I'll have my team send it over to you. That So basically, like, we literally recorded, because the first track in the, in, in the movie is Magambo, where he's saying, pick a side, do or die, because all we ever do is die. And um, before that, what he did was like, you know, I, there was a guy that was playing a dhol, which is this thing where, where you hit really fast. So it was a really fast, like rapid percussion. And I just told Riz, I just put the camera on. And I'm like, now I want you to sing. And he just did it. And that's like what, what he basically said in a faster rhythm that he basically came up with maybe like, uh, you know, 10 minutes before, like he was sitting there, like, you know, do this. And, he, and we do this right in the middle of a wrestling field. Bef like right as a perform like all these people are wrestling right on this like muddy sandy ground i'll send you the video but the but in a way i wanted to like start with that also to honor our friendship because you know the way he performs it on stage in the film is very different from how he performs it on that wrestling field but but the way he spits it still has this incredible energy and i feel like that kind of push of, of us kind of like continuing to like play with each other is such such an important part of the film and it's such an important part of i think our relationship but I wanted to also honor that. I hope it's the start of a, or this is the first of many, many mm -hmm. films that you guys make together. Because it's quite clear that you, you've, you very much, you know, with with doing what you say of kind of, you know, pushing and and trying to get that extra thing. The results are extraordinary. So I look forward to mm -hmm. to seeing what's what's next from you guys. Thank you so much for your time and massive oh, yeah. congratulations on the film oh, again. Thank you. Um, thank you so much yeah it's lovely to chat to you and meet you thank you very much for thank you thank you so much edith you this is really means a lot yeah thank you stay Thanks safe bye bye
as performed by Riz Ahmed, that's Mogambo. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Bassam Tariq and Ludwig Gornson. My huge thanks to Bassam for taking the time to talk to us. You can watch Mogul Mowgli now on the BFI player and at Curzon Home Cinema. For more details and information, just head to their website, which is Mogul Mowgli, which is M-O-G-U-L, mowglico.uk all the details on where you can watch it are up there and i highly recommend it head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes including my last conversation with ludwig two chats with john favreau and lockdown get together with mr riz ahmed facebook instagram and twitter is the place to follow us on socials we are at soundtracking uk And I also put together a little YouTube show as a companion to this podcast. So please do subscribe to that if you have a moment. Now, I did say at the start of the show that for the rest of the month, we are going to be doubling up on guests and we are going to do just that next week. Uh, We have Mr. Ben Frost, an amazing composer and musician who some of you uh, might be familiar with his fantastic work on the Netflix series Dark. We'll have Ben on the show next week and he'll also be joined by Rada Blank, who is a force of creative nature. She has a new film up on Netflix, which is called 40-Year-Old Version. She's a screenwriter, she's a theatre writer, she is a director, she's an actor, she is so many things. She is fabulous and I'm so excited that she's on the show next week along with Ben Frost. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. In the meantime, make sure you get watching these fantastic productions and stay safe.